Welcome to the Paralegal Voice, where you hear the latest issues and trends in the world of paralegals and legal assistance by two of the best-known paralegals in the industry, Vicki Voison and Linda Venny. Each of them paralegals for over 20 years and both dedicated to helping legal professionals reach their goals. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hi, welcome to the Paralegal Voice. Thanks for joining us for our monthly podcast here on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Lynn DeVenny, a North Carolina State Bar Certified Paralegal employed by Elliott, Pishko, Morgan, and Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I also blog for the paralegal profession at practicalparalegalism.com. And I'm Vicki Voison, a NALA Advanced Certified Paralegal calling in from Charlevoix, Michigan, where I work as a paralegal at Running Wise and Ford. I call myself the Paralegal Mentor, and I publish a weekly e-zine titled Paralegal Strategies that's available at paralegalmentor.com. The goal of the Paralegal Voice is to discuss a wide range of topics important to the paralegal industry and share with you our thoughts about leading trends, significant developments, and resources that we think you'll find useful in your careers and everyday jobs. And of course, we'll have guests on the program to help us explore these timely topics, and we have sponsors. Today, we welcome our sponsor, Terrace. That's T-E-R-I-S. Terrace offers a full suite of litigation support services. On today's show, we'll talk with attorney Beverly Michaelis, practice management advisor for the Oregon State Bar's Professional Liability Fund, to discuss practice management. And later in the program, we'll chat with Sean Seek from Terrace about what to look for in a service provider. Beverly is a practice management advisor for the Oregon State Bar's Professional Liability Fund. She has over 25 years' experience in the legal field as a lawyer and a legal assistant. She provides confidential practice management assistance to Oregon attorneys to reduce their risk of malpractice claims, enhance their enjoyment of practicing law, and improve their client relationships through clear communication and efficient delivery of legal services. She also writes a terrific practice management blog at OregonLawPracticeManagement.wordpress.com. Welcome to the show, Beverly. Thank you. We're really glad to have you. I'm glad to be here. Can you tell us a little about what you do on a daily basis for lawyers and law firms? Yes, I can. As a practice management advisor, I help law firms, including staff, with office system issues, with office setup sometimes even with office closure, and I do that by chiefly visiting law firms, but I also take phone calls, respond to emails. We do in-house presentations, speaking engagements, uh, write articles, maintain the blog, all those sorts of activities to help educate people. Well, I'm sure lawyers are always asking you for your feedback, Beverly. Can you share the most common practice issues that they contact you about? Yes, I can. I Probably 75% of my out-of-office visits to law firms are helping them set up their office. So it's a new partnership, a new firm, a new solo lawyer who may or may not have staff who wants to get their practice off to the right start, which we like around here. Our statistics show that office system errors are the number one cause of legal malpractice claims. That's true, at least in Oregon. So if we can help people get off on the right foot with calendaring, docketing, conflict of interest systems, 
in particular, then we know we can reduce their exposure for bar complaints, reduce their exposure for legal malpractice claims. So that, that really is our motivation in providing the advice and getting out there. I also get a lot of requests for information about client file retention, in particular now with offices being so interested in going paperless. And I know that's something we had discussed previously that you had some interest in in talking about. Also, a lot of questions about technology, not terribly surprising. And also about withdrawing from a practice because that process can be so messy, in particular if people don't see eye to eye and how that should happen. There are ethical repercussions. There are potential malpractice repercussions. So, advice and questions in any of those areas are what they're most interested in. Beverly, I've seen those messy withdrawals firsthand, so (laughs) I think you must be a great resource. Um, As far as technology, paralegals and legal assistants, they're often on the front line when introducing attorneys to technology that'll increase office efficiency and productivity. I like to call it begging. Uh, What (laughs) kinds of technology do you usually find yourself recommending to law firms? You know, I've been in that same position, too, and I sometimes have to say to people, I know I'm trying to spend your money here, but you really do need to do this. It varies all over the place because, especially now with the economy and so many people seeking to open up law offices, either because they've been laid off, they can't find a job, people in that position who are more likely than not without staff often have such a limited budget, we're really trying to help them get by with whatever they have. And so the kind of advice you give them is, how can I use Microsoft Outlook or how can I use something else that's already on my laptop or desktop to make do? So budget is a big constraint. But if someone has the funds and they're willing to go to the next level beyond basic calendaring contact management programs, practice management software is a great thing. But a big mistake that I see a lot of people make uh, is that they have the funds to buy the product or to uh, access SaaS, software as a service, but they don't back it up with either a time commitment or further money commitment for training. Right. And then staff often have the new product foisted upon them. They need to continue to get work out the door, but they don't know how to use it. And maybe they're using one-tenth or less of the capacity of the program, or they're just very frustrated because they don't understand how to do what it is they need to get done. So it, it's, I would say, more than anything, kind of a process of analysis. What are your needs? What can you afford? And then trying to help the firm find what is the most logical choice for them. Well, you know, I think a, a huge problem with that, Beverly, is that uh, people, the staff, doesn't have time to do the training because they're trying to get the work out the door. So that's that's a pretty big problem. And I'm, I, I'm wondering, though, if firms are reluctant to adopt this recommended technology, you know, and, and if, they, if they're reluctant, which kinds are they the most reluctant about? They are definitely reluctant. The legal profession has a reputation of being very conservative about embracing technology across the board. So we sort of, there's almost a culture of that. So some of it's psychological, some, some of it is financial. And I appreciate that people do find it difficult to find the time to get the training or to learn the product, but you've made such a big money investment. What I'm encouraging is that firms 
allow people that opportunity and make time for it, get it scheduled, bring the consultants in, do whatever it takes if possible, but specifically in terms of what are they most reluctant to adopt. Hardware is more readily embraced than software, no doubt about it. People don't even think twice, I I want to get a new Hewlett-Packard printer, I want to get a new Fujitsu scanner. doesn't even cross their mind um, to slow down. They proceed directly to the store and purchase that new item. I want the new iPhone or whatever it might be. It's software where people are most reluctant. And the number one thing that people dig their heels in about upgrading, understandably, are operating systems. And we see that even here in our office. None of us are on Windows Vista. Now we've got Windows 7. And I will say in folks' defense that it's always been suggested to me you should never take an existing computer system and upgrade its operating system. The best way to move on to the next level, whatever it may be, is when you install and set up new computers, that you're really asking for it if you try to upgrade an operating system. People are pretty cautious and reluctant to adopt document management software. I don't, you know, unless it's a large law firm, which is such a shame because while practice management applications offer some document management capability, if you want to go paperless, DMS is your best friend, but no one seems to want to spend the money on it. And then practice management is the other thing they're relatively reluctant about. Real quickly, I would just add that I am appreciative of the enthusiasm with which SAS is being embraced. We just had a very lively discussion on our solo and small firm listserv, which is one of the listservs maintained through the Oregon State Bar for the solo and small firm members. I was shocked, actually, to see so many people talking back and forth about Rocket Matter and Clio, and I thought, that's great, because it means that people are finally getting what they, the tools they need to do their job. I'm excited about it too. Yeah, yeah, it it really does make a difference and and I you just mentioned paperless Beverly and I think that kind of leads us right into to Lynn's next question about that topic. Well, first of all, anybody who reads my blog knows I hate paper. Um, But I know, and I work with several lawyers, can be very reluctant to part with their beloved paper files, even if they take up hundreds of volumes of notebooks and redwall folders. How do you recommend that law firms, especially the smaller to mid-sized firms, get started on reducing their paper? And what are some of the benefits of going paperless? Good question. And you are right. Your instinct is correct. What seems to motivate most people's interest when we receive the calls anyway is they've just gotten their storage bill and they see how much they're paying to keep old client files in a storage facility. So now their solution is, I want to go paperless and scan all this. My personal opinion is that is absolutely the wrong way to go. Don't ever start a project of we want to move more toward a paperless office with your old client files. First of all, going paperless is not necessarily, it's desirable, but not necessarily easy. It can be very labor-intensive. And honestly, how people maintained files in the past is not terribly conducive to making that transition now. When you think through just the practicalities of documents that are hole-punched, stapled, paperclip, the post-it notes, I was in a lawyer's office not long ago. He had decided to go paperless. He had recruited his son to scan files, decided to start with the closed files, and he said, I'm so frustrated because... (laughs) 
sometimes we're scanning and all of a sudden the scanner just stops for no apparent reason. And he said, here, let me try to show you what I mean. So they start a scan. Well, the reason the scanner was stopping was because they had post-it notes all over the paper. (laughs) And the Fujitsu scanner was smart enough to detect that there was something blocking, that there was a post-it on top of something with text. And it was intuitive enough to know I shouldn't be trying to scan this because something is obliterated, and that's why it was stopping. It was trying to prompt the user, remove the other item, and then I'll finish the scan job for you. So I just find that closed files aren't a good way to go. I strongly prefer that people begin with open active matters. I think they get the biggest payoff that way. And of course, the biggest benefit of going paperless is access to information. It can be about money, it can be about other issues, but if I'm paperless and the file is stored on the network or in a way that's accessible to all people that need to work with that data and information, I'm no longer bound to that paper file. I'm not wasting time trying to find it. I'm not taking the time doing a lot of paper filing. Everybody can get to it when they need it. I can access it remotely. Clients might be given permission to access that information through an extranet or other means, through sharing and online collaboration services. You know, there's nothing but good things that can come from that, but the benefits are going to derive from working with the current active information. And if you have people who are reluctant, we've been slowly embracing it around here, and we do have document management software, and we're rolling it out one department at a time, and it hasn't made it to my department yet, but it, but it is happening. If you're in a law firm, a really good way to get going, to start changing mindsets and uh, getting folks to start these practices is Start simple, start small. There are three things that immediately come to mind. Number one, stop printing emails. There is no reason to do that. Please don't print the long, long email strings and then make your staff turn around and file that in a paper file. Keep that information electronically. Whether you acknowledge it or not, everyone already has some paperless files because we all at least have folders for clients and their matters where we have the word processing documents. So why not create a subfolder or put it in correspondence? You decide. But make a place within the client's folder to save the email. There are many different techniques to doing that. You can do it sometimes within your email program like Outlook. Acrobat does a great job of creating email archives. Practice management can help you uh, attach email to a specific client's file for record-keeping purposes. And once you do that, then anybody else working on that file in the office has what? Access to that information. Otherwise, they're waiting for me to print it and put it in the file. Then if they go check the paper file, then maybe they can see the email content. Or honestly, what happens many times, it's sitting hostage in the inbox of the lawyer to whom the email was addressed. The staff person hasn't seen it. Other lawyers haven't seen it. They don't have the information. So it's a, a bad practice to approach it that way. So stop printing email, number one. Number two, start keeping file notes on the computer. It can be a word processing memo to the file. It can be a fillable PDF. It can be note-taking capability in a software product, 
practice management if you've got it, but it can be simple and sweet. Just create a new blank document, make a template maybe in Word or WordPerfect and save it to that client's folder. You don't have to do handwritten notes to the file. When you save it electronically, it's searchable, which again, a huge advantage when you're trying to find information. The number three for clients who can do this, you could start offering online intake forms or at least a fillable PDF that you can send via email if you're not able to offer an intake form over a secure internet connection. So those are three small ways that people can get started. Those are great suggestions, Beverly, and and I I know that everybody will probably be doing all of this in the future. And, you know, the worst thing is, is that we get an email and we open it and look at it and then we just close it back up and let it sit there for a little while, too. So bad habits got to change them. But I want to ask you one thing about ethics very quickly, because we're almost yeah. at the end of the program. Um, I do some speaking on ethics and technology. In fact, it's one of the my best programs or best received programs. And I know that there are a lot of ethical errors that paralegals can make because of technology. And I'm wondering how you recommend that they avoid those. Well, the two that come to mind are inadvertently sending out documents that contain metadata that can be embarrassing, can create a a waiver of privilege situation. We can imagine other scenarios where it might be embarrassing or we certainly wouldn't want that information visible to the other side. So uh, WordPerfect is at least more or less believed to be not a creator of much metadata, but my understanding is I use Word more than WordPerfect. It, It does... There is some, and there are some WordPerfect-specific tools, and I don't have a reference in front of me to that, but I know that it exists. Within Word 2007, there's um, a specific set of commands or steps that one can follow to inspect your Word document, and other Microsoft Office applications have that same capability. And at least within Word, you can also change your options so that documents are, you're automatically prompted if there are tracked changes within a document that maybe you can't see but are there and have not been processed. And now you're trying to save or print that document. Same thing, you can set it up to automatically inspect for metadata. My only caution about using Word to accomplish that is You really need to be careful. You know, you have to know what you're doing when you're removing metadata. One of the things that Word will often do is stop with anything that's in a header or footer or a watermark. And so you might say, oh, yes, please remove that metadata, and it just wiped out your header or footer. So often, if you don't understand quite how those settings work, experiment on a copy. Acrobat recommends that as well. They have a document, examine document, menu command. You can also set an option in Acrobat to automatically check for metadata too so you don't have to remember to carry out those menu steps. But when you ask Acrobat to remove metadata, you've got to know what it's doing and how it works. Acrobat recommends or Adobe recommends that you, again, do this with a copy. Don't Uh, do it on your one and only version of the document because when you wipe the metadata, you might get very unexpected results. The other thing that paralegals can watch out for, they're sometimes given the responsibility to redact. In my personal opinion, the best redaction tools are those within Acrobat. I know that there are other redaction software that you can use, but the way not to redact is to take a text box, fill it, 
with Phil, <laughs> you know, black it out in other words, and, and then maybe make that into a PDF and assume you're good to go. Because in Acrobat, I can lift that text box object off the page and see what was behind it. You have to really, truly redact. And again, Acrobat recommends always redact with a copy and make a separate redacted version because something may, may go kerflui, that's a legal term, may go kerflui on you when you're redacting. And you don't want to redact, make those changes permanent to your one and only version of the document. So those are the two things I think these days to be most careful of. I totally agree with you. And uh, the other thing is to be sure to turn off the track changes if you don't want it on there too. Oh my gosh. And there's a whole... Um, I have a document on my SlideShare account that one can get to through my LinkedIn profile about doing that. And, you know, there, Word has a specific help feature. If you simply search in Word, click on help and say, how do I make sure track changes are really turned off? Uh, you, will, you will bring up the help information about that. But, I, in fact, I just got a document from someone yesterday. I'm sure they thought that they had turned it off, and they hadn't. And I saw in the reviewing pain, all of those changes that they had made. So that's a very common, common, easy to make mistake. Well, Ouch. Beverly, th yeah, right. Thanks so much. Uh, we appreciate Beverly Michaelis for being with us today. And Beverly, if someone wanted more information on the Oregon State Bar's Professional Liability Fund, how could they contact you? Probably best thing is to just send a direct email and I'm at Beverly M, B-E-V-E-R-L-Y, M at osbplf.org. You can also contact me through my blog, and Lynn gave the address, or Vicki, I don't recall who, but the address was given at the beginning of the podcast. I'm also on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is at management. so let me spell that, O-R-E-L-A-W-P-R-A-C, MGMT, so sort of an abbreviation or acronym, our website is password protected. So it is made available for Oregon lawyers only. Great. But we can follow your terrific blog, and I recommend that everybody out there put it in their RSS reader. Absolutely. And Great I articles. assume everyone listening is smart enough to be uh, getting the feeds, too, from Practical Paralegalism and uh, Paralegal Mentor, because I just can't say enough about the two of you. I, I, I think you must be, I don't know what, <laughs> because you're just, I cannot believe that you find the time to do all that you do and be so active with on the social media side with blogging and your Twitter accounts, but just the information that you put out is absolutely great, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. We appreciate that. It's time to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Sean Seek, Vice President, ESI Business Development at Terrace. Terrace understands the unique demands during litigation. Our clients tell us they are spending less time and money through all phases of legal case management with the customized approach of Terrace. We are a nationally recognized litigation service provider with offices in eight cities, working with law firms and in-house corporate legal groups to provide custom solutions within your budget. Terrace can help. For more information, please call 877-99-TERRACE or visit www.terrace.com. 
Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code PV for a 25% discount. Welcome back to the Paralegal Voice. I'm Vicki Voison, and my co-host today is Lynn Devenny. One quick program note, we'd like to suggest that you subscribe to the Paralegal Voice. The price is right. It's free. You can do that either by going to Legal Talk Network at LegalTalkNetwork.com or subscribe to the program in the podcast directory of iTunes. That way you'll automatically receive each new edition. Our next guest is Sean Seek, Vice President, ESI Business Development at Terrace. Terrace is a full-service litigation support provider offering sophisticated consultation-based solutions, state-of-the-art technologies, and highly experienced project management. Welcome, Sean. Thank you for having me. We're happy to have you with us today. This is a really important topic. And so many paralegals are really interested in litigation support. What I'd like to know is what are the top three things that they should consider when hiring a litigation support vendor? Well, it's it's really going to be tough to kind of narrow it down to three. But if I you know if I really had to, um, probably one of the most important ones that's out there is making sure that you're working with a vendor or a partner that has a diversity of product and platform offerings. What I mean by that is just making sure that they don't try and single source anything and they become agnostic. Um, the biggest thing is to making sure that they have exposure and experience to different solutions and hosting platforms and different searching and e-discovery tools. So they're not just using one because no matter how much we try, not one program or application can actually do everything. The next area I'd probably would dive into would probably be you know, background and experience um, of the law regarding your case or the project that you're working on. Making sure that the vendor or partner that you choose uh, you know, is familiar with that area of the law. You know, to whether you know, obviously there's different types of litigation, but uh, as well as if it's some of the investigatory type as well, making sure that they have experience with that. Um, and then the other part that I could really strongly recommend is making sure that they have all aspects of the processing and the project management under one roof, as far as it's all part of one company. Just try and avoid partnerships. Uh, it really leads to a decreased communication and then other challenges down the road. Sure. Well, those are really three good points. And and the next thing is that, you know, of course, law firms all have a budget. And I understand that hiring a litigation support vendor uh, directly will save the firm money. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. Usually what we do, um, when we, as far as we, when we start working with firms more on a, on a corpus level, is uh, oftentimes we try and suggest direct billing. So what I mean by that is, is negotiate the pricing you know, at a volume level with the vendor and with the law firm, uh, so that way they know what it's going to be every single time when they get a project. They don't have to collect several bids. Doing so will allow for direct billing. So the direct billing piece is going to uh, allow the, the vendor or the partner to, instead of billing the law firm, law firm turning around and having that sitting on their books and then turning around billing their client, is to negotiate the whole process where the vendor or the partner service provider actually bills the client directly. That keeps a lot of the, you know, the books much cleaner and is actually much easier to track, so that way that um, everyone's really on the same page. 
Another part of that is going to be, you know, volume pricing and discount. When you, you know, when a law firm and or corporation selects a vendor or partner is, you know, to make sure to negotiate for volume pricing, you know, in, in, in layman's terms, you know, hey, if we give you all of our business, we want to be able to, you know, expect some kind of volume pricing and or discount. This also leads to streamlining of output. So that way you know as a law firm and, and the lit support team, paralegals, everyone in between knows what they're going to get every single time. And that, that they don't have, there's no explanations needed. There's no uh, revisions of deliverables, anything of that sort. So that way you're, not, you're basically just not wasting time because, hey, time is money. Absolutely. And, you know, are there any other reasons why a firm should consider hiring a, you know, hiring a litig- litigation support vendor directly? Yeah, the, one of the, the biggest assets that you're really going to see that some people don't keep in mind is a single point of communication for all aspects of the case. Um, I've I've been involved many times where that there's one person that's doing the the legal hold and distribution. There's another person that's doing the collections. There's another person or company that's doing the processing. And there's like a fourth or even a fifth person that's or company that's going to be involved doing the hosting and uh, the production piece. So if you can bring those all into one. One, one common company that you're able to, you know, streamline a lot of your processing. Just basically fewer kicks, cooks in the, ki- in the kitchen, and it eliminates a lot of the communication challenges. And it's, it really allows for the firm to, you know, establish a solid relationship with the project managers of that, of that vendor. And it really helps everyone just kind of keep everything in check and watch each other back so that, uh, you know, there's no surprises that come up even you know, when it comes to, to billing or to processing or to you know, any kind of productions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Boy, my ears really perked up when you said that you bill the, the client directly. And uh, I know that that would be an important point for my firm that would that would really help. And so that's that's a really great idea. Yeah, we've um, been doing a lot more of that. Mm-hmm, yeah. Well, you know, uh, what they say is that law firms aren't banks. And, and that's, that really makes it tough. So that's, that's, that's really a good thing. Uh, what I'd like to know next is, you know, what does it mean that law firms should, um, should identify a vendor's true capabilities versus partnerships they depend on? You know, why is that important? Well, first, let's just define that. So um, you know, vendors and their service providers um, oftentimes aren't, don't have the ability to do, to do everything. There aren't a, a, a tremendous amount of companies that can actually house everything under one roof or one company. So if they started off as, you know, strictly being just a forensic collection and analyst and investigation company, and then they wanted to start dabbling or, or, or diving into the processing and or hosting, they'll oftentimes create partnerships and alliances with other companies. So if that's, they're doing that, um, they're doing it because they, they see there's a need for the business, but they don't have that the ability to take that in-house and manage it themselves. So they're relying on someone else to manage the project under their name. And it oftentimes becomes challenging. Uh, it creates a delay in communication. If there's a spec change, if you need an update, if there's a mistake, uh, oftentimes you have to call one person just to have them call another. So it becomes pretty challenging. It really takes the, that sense of ownership out of your hands. And that's one thing that we always want to kind of step away from. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Sean. Those are all of the questions that I have for you, and I appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. But something really important is if our listeners want more information about Terrace, how can they get in touch with you? Well, the best way really is to go to our website. It's just www.terris.com. Thank you. Thank you very much. We appreciate your being here. All right. Thank you.
Introducing Westlaw Deposition Services. Our team will arrange the deposition logistics for you anywhere in the world. Our court reporters are certified live note reporters, making them the very best real-time reporters available. Our professional video production team produces trial-ready video, digitized and synced to the transcript. Experience the Westlaw Deposition Services difference so you can focus on the essential aspects of your work. To schedule a deposition, call 1-800-548-3668 or visit westlawdepositions.com. NALA means professional. NALA offers classroom and web-based continuing education and professional development for all paralegals. And NALA's certified paralegal credential has been a gold standard of professionalism for over 30 years. More than 15,000 paralegals have this certification, and nearly 2,000 have achieved the demanding advanced certified paralegal. NALA works actively with others in the legal field to promote the value of paralegals and to advance paralegal professionalism. See more about why NALA means professional at www.nala.org. A video settlement documentary is a powerful tool. It can turn your plaintiff's case into money at the settlement table. Call the professionals at Skyways Communications at 781-551-9960 to find out more. Welcome back. This is the time where Len and I share announcements and our practice tips with you. Are you ready, Len? Yes, Vicki, I am. We were just talking about how excited we are to get to meet each other face-to-face at the North Carolina Paralegal Association's annual conference in Wrightsville Beach in March. And I'm also very excited about traveling to San Jose, California to speak at the National Federation of Paralegal Association's annual Technology Institute. Uh, But I want to talk just a second about social media. Too many people have the perception that social media is mostly talking to your friends on Facebook when you're supposed to be working. But social media is so much more than a way to keep up with friends and waste time at work. It has changed the world, as shown by the earthquake in Haiti. Over a million dollars was raised for the Red Cross in one day this week, and much more money since by Twitter, Facebook, blogs, and other multimedia sources sharing the Texting for Haiti campaign, where you text the word Haiti to 90999 to donate $10 to the Red Cross. Social media is providing a lifeline to Haiti, and it can provide a lifeline in our paralegal careers as well. If you're not already exploring its potential, you need to start. It's not going away, and for that, I'm really grateful. Right, that's a great tip, Lynn. And I've been busy this morning sending today's issue of Paralegal Strategies with the feature article focusing on an important leadership tip, and that's Take the High Road. I'm also preparing for the Paralegal Mentor Mastermind call next Tuesday, January the 19th, when my guest will be leadership expert Mark Levin, C-A-E-C-S-P. Mark is just a terrific speaker, and he's going to have a lot of great information. My practice tip for today has to do with ethics after hours. In fact, I'm going to, as soon as we're off this call, write an article about this topic. And I want our listeners to always remember that their actions after they leave work are as important as they are during the working hours. Uh, Concerns about confidentiality and privilege, as well as a lot of other ethics issues, are with us 24-7, and we, we just can't forget that. You're right. I'm looking forward to seeing your article. That's about all the time we have today for the Paralegal Voice. 
Don't forget to check out the show notes on our blogs, paralegalmentor.com and practicalparalegalism.com. This is Vicki Voison. And this is Lynn Devaney. Thanking you all for joining us today and reminding you to make your paralegal voice heard. Thanks for listening to The Paralegal Voice with Linda Venny and Vicki Voison. This podcast is produced by the Legal Talk Network. Be sure to get the next edition of the podcast. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.